Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 36 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This episode contains distressing themes, explicit language and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. He murdered because he wanted to, for sexual or other gratification, or perhaps to see what it was like to kill, like so many of his heroes, who he had clearly been researching. Brian Altman QC, The Old Bailey, July 2007. Built during the 1930s in a semi-rural setting, St George's Hospital on Sutton's Lane in Hornchurch offered specialist treatment to over 100 patients. Set amongst the sprawling grounds were numerous red brick buildings, several stories high. Although it has now closed its doors for good, the institution in Havering, North East London, supported geriatric patients some of whom had dementia. The Sutton House Day Unit was an area where patients with mental health needs were also treated. 
the rear of the grounds backed onto Hornchurch Country Park, a vast area of woodland, a popular place for dog walkers. It was also a spot close to the nurses' quarters, where employees would take a moment to relax before they returned to their busy shift. Staff were not allowed to smoke anywhere around the hospital, so when some employees needed a cigarette, they headed to a patch of the park behind the grounds, nicknamed Tobacco Alley. In the late morning of April 6th, 2006, an employee went on a quick break to have a cigarette, walking through the hospital to the area that adjoined Hornchurch Country Park. Around 30 minutes later, someone was out walking their dog when they noticed an individual laying on a path adjacent to the park. Without a moment's hesitation, they felt they should investigate and help the person on the floor. She was dressed in a nurse's uniform. The woman appeared to have been viciously assaulted. She was unconscious and there were no signs of life. Staff at the nearby hospital were hurriedly directed to the scene. They recognised the woman immediately. She was one of their colleagues, and had last been seen when she went on her break. The nurse's entire body was covered in blood. Bystanders thought she must have been stabbed a hundred times. The hospital did not have an accident and emergency department, so an air ambulance was dispatched. A team of medical professionals tended to the woman's numerous injuries. However, sadly, the victim was pronounced dead at the scene. News of what had happened quickly reached the staff and patients on the wards of St George's. Everyone was on high alert, unaware if the person or people responsible was still on the grounds. Children were picked up from the nursery and ushered quietly elsewhere. Police arrived quickly and sealed off the hospital, interviewing everyone that left. Rumours circulated that an individual with long hair dressed in a tracksuit was responsible. Nurses and doctors were petrified of another attack, scared they would be next. Some staff were in tears and had to be chaperoned home. Thankfully, the terrifying possibility of another stabbing in broad daylight never became a reality. The next day, nurses and doctors returned to the grounds. A bouquet of chrysanthemums had been secured to the front gate in tribute to a life lost. A card from staff read, God bless and keep you, from your colleagues on Canvey Ward. The woman who had been attacked was formally identified as Cheryl Moss. She had worked as a nurse on the wards of St George's for the last decade, employed in the care sector since she was 16. 
Cheryl's colleagues said she was a well-liked and respected individual. Because of her sunny disposition, she was nicknamed Smiley. The 33-year-old had lived happily with her partner Peter in a flat the couple shared in Dagenham, East London. They had known each other for three years and had been married for 18 months. The couple was saving up to buy their own home. Peter had sent his wife a text message on the morning she died. However, there was no response. Cheryl's mother then called her son-in-law just after lunchtime, as she too was unable to get through. Peter drove to the hospital where his wife worked, and it was on the way that he learned of the tragic events that turned his world upside down. Escorted by a police officer, Cheryl's family visited the hospital and laid flowers near the scene. After reading the tributes left by staff, the family chose not to initially offer a public statement, understandably too distraught. Cheryl's father left a bouquet of flowers along with a card that read, Taken so cruelly from us, will always be in our hearts. Cheryl had sent a text message to her father on the morning she was killed. Terence Hewitt had turned 61 that day, and he was looking forward to seeing his daughter. She had wished him a happy birthday, and the pair were due to meet that evening. However, he would never see his daughter again. Cheryl's brother Chris would later speak to a correspondent for the Sunday Express. He revealed that his sister and her husband had plans to start a family. Speaking about Cheryl, Chris Hewitt said, She didn't have a care in the world. She made friends so easily, but wasn't afraid to speak her mind. He described how his sister had not had an easy life, but she found true happiness with her husband. Recounting how he thought his mother was exaggerating when he heard the news, believing Cheryl had just been in an accident, it was not until Chris arrived at the hospital he found out about what had happened. He broke down in tears. Detectives believe that Cheryl Moss, who stood just over five feet tall, was only briefly going out for a cigarette. She would usually be joined by a colleague, however her friend was too busy. Cheryl went out alone, and it was then she was targeted. The post-mortem was later completed, and there appeared to be no signs of a sexual attack. One of the investigating officers, Dick Langley, the detective superintendent with the Metropolitan Police, spoke to the press about how the events unfolded on Thursday, April 6th, 2006. At the time, the detective would not be drawn in to discussing the specific injuries inflicted during the killing. In an interview outside the front of the hospital, 
DS Langley told the media that they were ruling almost nothing out as they worked to track down the person or people responsible. There is a full forensic examination taking place, DS Langley said. There are some witnesses, but none of the actual attack. The murder weapon had not yet been found. DS Langley did, however, confirm that one line of inquiry they were not pursuing was the possibility that the killing was committed by a patient at St George's, the majority of whom were elderly. Although it was possible the murder may have been committed by someone close to the victim, it was theorised a random attack was more likely, with the culprit potentially lying in wait. The chances are this person was hanging around for some time, the detective concluded. Everyone assumes it's a man, but the reality is, it could be a woman. The obvious thing is to take care and not go out alone. Reports in the press had looked at a possible link to the murder of Margaret Muller. The American artist was stabbed to death as she jogged in Victoria Park just over three years earlier. Addressing the possibility that the same person was responsible, D.S. Langley said, We have not made any connection, but it is always a possibility as it remains an unsolved murder. An extensive inquiry had been undertaken. Thousands of statements were produced. A reward of £20,000 was offered and arrests were made. But to this day, no one has been charged for the murder of Margaret Muller. After the attack, there was a noticeable increase in the number of security guards patrolling the grounds. The Havering Primary Care Trust, who ran the hospital, hoped to dispel the fears of both staff and patients. Although almost every nurse and doctor faced some level of abuse in their position, the Trust had never seen anything approaching this level of violence. One member of staff from St George's Hospital, trainee nurse Imelda Destura, spoke about the attack on her colleague, a lone female killed in the daylight hours. We are all frightened because we don't know who did it, she said. Everyone is very upset. I'm frightened to come back, but I will. This is the first time something like this has happened at the hospital. It is safe here, but we will ask for security to be stepped up now. We're all frightened because we don't have any idea who did it. Some employees who knew Cheryl Moss could not bring themselves to come back into work. They were offered counselling to deal with the brutal nature of the loss. The murder reignited the conversation around the safety of caregivers and the increasing number of attacks and threats they faced in their role as frontline staff. The first arrest was made in connection with the incident. Still, no sooner had news of the murder been reported, the suspect, a man in his twenties, was released without charge. 
Both patients and the public were repeatedly asked to come forward if they had seen anything suspicious. Over 150 officers from Scotland Yard joined the hunt to track down the killer. On their hands and knees, scores of forensic officers from a specialist search team combed the park and the grounds of the hospital in the pursuit for evidence. Tracker dogs were brought in and combed nearby scrubland. The hospital's closed-circuit television was analysed for clues. Staff working on the morning of the attack were questioned about what they saw. Security was tight at the front of the institution, though there were few measures at the rear. Only a gate secured the hospital from any parties that wished to access the grounds from the park. A faded sign hung on the rear gate. It read, Hospital Watch Area. Let's beat crime together. Rumours persisted that perhaps the killer was living in the scrubland by the park and might still return. It would not be long before another arrest was made, but this time it was labelled as significant. A member of the public had notified the police when they saw a blue Nike sports bag, the item which had a direct connection to the suspect was discovered around two and a half miles northwest from the hospital on the bank of a river on Upper Raynham Road. 24 hours after the body of Cheryl Moss was found, the 18-year-old suspect was arrested and taken to a police station for questioning. The name of the individual was not released, however he was said to be living in the vicinity of the hospital. Reports confirmed that the young man was not a member of Cheryl Moss's family, although any connection to her remained unclear. Detective Superintendent Dick Langley continued in his appeal for witnesses who had seen the young adult male known to be carrying the blue Nike bag near the scene. Furthermore, D.S. Langley asked that two youths, who had been spotted around the park behind the hospital in the late morning of April 6th, come forward. There were reports from the public that the teenagers had been witnessed talking to someone who matched the description of the suspect. The young adult male appeared to be wearing a black wig. The youths he had supposedly spoken to were riding a moped. The brief exchange occurred at 10.45am, around 25 minutes before police arrived at the scene. From a distance, what was thought to be the young suspect's shoulder-length hair appeared dark in colour. It was not until his arrest it was now understood that the hair was not his own. The 18-year-old had been seen in the park numerous times in the lead-up to the killing. While press reports suggested that the bag found likely contained clothing stained with blood, a knife 
or perhaps the black wig. A spokesperson for Scotland Yard would not be drawn into confirming what had been found. Detectives were granted an extension to question the suspect, as officers were confident he was involved. When the post-mortem was complete, it established what the officers working the case already knew. Cheryl Moss had been stabbed to death. That said, it was concluded the killer used the weapon in excess of 70 times. There were wounds all over the body. The skull, face, neck, chest and back. Four days after the attack, the 18-year-old suspected of carrying out the murder appeared before Enfield Magistrates Court in North London. Stuart Harling lived on Blake Close in Raynham, a town approximately three miles south of the hospital where Cheryl Moss worked. Harling was studying to be an accountant at the time of his arrest. Dressed in a multicoloured red and grey hooded top, Harling, a former scout leader, spoke only to confirm his personal details. He was told that he would be held on remand until a further hearing due to the seriousness of the crime. A funeral was held for an esteemed and dedicated nurse. The ceremony attracted hundreds of mourners that watched as the procession passed. The chapel at South Essex Crematorium in Upminster was filled with Cheryl's colleagues, nurses, doctors and paramedics who all wanted to pay their respects to mourn a life tragically cut short. Cheryl's husband, Peter Moss, said, I feel humbled to see such a wonderful turnout and see how much she was loved. A pre-trial and preparation hearing would take place at the Old Bailey during the summer of 2006, although it would not be until the end of spring 2007 when Stuart Harling would go to trial. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The legal proceedings were barely underway before the defendant shouted from the dock, I'm going to shoot you with a machine gun. Brian Altman QC witnessed the defendant continuously screaming and shouting obscenities, directing his anger at the prosecutor and throwing paperwork throughout the courtroom. Stuart Harling would not let Altman finish his opening remarks, telling the prosecutor that he wanted to, quote, cut off his head and shit down the hole. Harling was warned by the judge, Common Sergeant of London Brian Barker, that he either remain quiet or he should leave the courtroom. From the public gallery, Cheryl's family witnessed more outbursts directed at members of the jury who the defendant claimed to know. According to Harling, they were assassins, and held a grudge against him. Harling had demanded that his family not attend the trial and described his sister as a grass as she allegedly spoke with the police. Stuart Harling, whom it was being argued, stabbed Cheryl Moss to death, had made it abundantly clear that he did not want to be in the courtroom and said he'd like to go back to his cell. Unsurprisingly, no one argued. The trial continued in his absence, and Harling did not return for the remainder of the day. 
In an earlier hearing, the defendant admitted that he killed Cheryl Moss, injuring her more than 70 times, but he denied committing murder. His counsel, Michael Wolkind QC, explained that his client offered a guilty plea to manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility. This was rejected by the Crown. The now 19-year-old had been assessed by experts who confirmed a diagnosis of Asperger's. Harling's medical history made no mention of any mental health issues, although he had never been to see a psychiatrist before. Expert opinion was divided. One doctor believed that the defendant was suffering from a schizoid personality disorder at the time of the crime. Defence barrister Michael Wolkind QC submitted that his client was not responsible for his actions. Harling was in a, quote, mentally abnormal state when he ended Cheryl Moss's life. Stuart Harling was interviewed following his arrest and he spoke about himself along with describing his fantasies. He told doctors that he wanted to break into someone's home and rape them at knife point. In a file found on his computer, he also wrote a story about wanting to stab a black woman on Upminster Bridge. Harling desired to go down in what he saw as a blaze of glory, being shot by a police officer after committing a notorious crime. Making repeated apologies to the court for his client's behaviour, Michael Wolkind QC said of Harling, He is certainly not normal. One morning he is a scout leader and an altar boy, and the next minute he is planning a coup in Equatorial Guinea. Aside from evidence, later found on the Harling family computer and hidden in the defendant's bedroom, there was nothing in Stuart Harling's background that would indicate he had plans to carry out such a brutal murder. He lived an unremarkable life in Raynham, There were few, if any, reports that he got into violent altercations. Only on one occasion when he retaliated against a school bully did he physically strike someone. That said, the only comprehensive account of his life came from Harling himself, which raises questions as to whether or not he is a reliable narrator. When interviewed after the killing, Harling said he left school with almost a dozen GCSEs before continuing his education at Havering College. In an effort not to be singled out, he said he did his best to fit in by copying the mannerisms and social etiquette of other children. He appeared to be a bright pupil, although he was easily distracted by his PlayStation. He enjoyed playing computer games. During the trial, the prosecution raised questions about how a young man who is in the middle of an accountancy course seeking employment and showing no signs of mental health issues 
had both Asperger's and a personality disorder that had gone unnoticed. Brian Altman QC suggested that Harling wanted to appear mad so as to receive a lesser sentence. After all, Harling had carried out what was described as dry runs. He had also purchased what he needed to commit the crime beforehand. To bolster the argument that Stuart Harling was not of sound mind when he committed the killing, the defence called several expert witnesses to the stand. Professor Digby Tantum told the court that Violence occurs with people with Asperger's no more than with the general population. But when it does happen, it tends to be directed at strangers. Forensic psychiatrist Dr. Philip Joseph, also testifying, was of the opinion that Harling had Asperger's syndrome or a personality disorder. He confirmed that Harling's behaviour suggested he was trying to mimic a, quote, normal person. The doctor disagreed with the prosecution's suggestion that Harling was feigning a mental health issue. However, Joseph was certain the defendant would kill again. He told the court that he could not think of a more dangerous teenager in the country. On the subject of Stuart Harling's mental state, Dr. Philip Joseph said, His condition is untreatable. He is completely detached from any emotion, and that makes him extremely dangerous. He cannot empathise with other people and shows no remorse for his actions. Jurors at the Old Bailey were told of the circumstances in which Cheryl Moss was found, the unsuccessful attempts to save her life. The staff at the hospital where Cheryl worked had remarked they had seen an individual with long hair that resembled a wig lingering around the scene. The prosecutor said this was some form of rehearsal. It was only after a sports bag was found near a riverbank that the connection to Stuart Harling was made. The bag contained a hunting knife, sunglasses and a wig along with an envelope on which was printed Harling's surname and his family's home address. After he fled, he quickly changed his clothes, also concealing those in the sports bag. All the items in the bag were covered in blood. Only hours after the attack, Harling had sought medical treatment for an injury to his hand a substantial cut and fracture. Doctors at the now-closed Old Church Hospital in Romford were told the damage was inflicted when Harling had fallen on some scrap metal. Medical professionals had no reason to doubt his explanation. When police arrived at his home and searched his room, they found a sword and a collection of knives numerous books on forensic science, and a box of condoms. He had also ordered a DVD, Hand-to-Hand Combat Knife-Fighting Self-Defense 2. It suggested which parts of the body to strike so as to inflict the most damage. 
The argument from the defence suggested that Harling had approached Cheryl Moss to steal her car. He had supposedly planned to gather together over a hundred people whom he could arm. They would stage a military coup in an all-rich African country. It was stated by Michael Walkind QC that to enact his plan, Harling needed a vehicle to transport the firearms. Apparently, Harling never intended to take her life. Given the defendant's erratic and conflicting accounts, whether or not his plan to amass an army was indeed the motive behind his actions would be a question only the jury can answer. Andrew Holland, Harling's best friend at the time of his arrest, provided a statement. He labelled Harling a bit off the wall in a nice way. The defendant was studying accountancy at Havering College. His friend said that Harling could have achieved so much more, but he simply could not be bothered. When not playing computer games, Harling regularly read about serial killers. Dennis Nielsen was a murderer he took a particular interest in. Looking to see if there had been any killings around where he lived, Harling searched on the internet for serial killer Essex and serial killer Romford. It was postulated that perhaps he wanted to be the first local serial killer. The browsing history on his computer suggested Harling read several articles on decapitation. He visited racist websites and watched a lot of violent pornography. Search terms found on his browser included choking, strangling and Nazi knives. According to the prosecution, when he was not indoors on his computer, Harling would go on walks alone along the banks of the River Ingrable. After the killing, he was back online checking to see if any news reports appeared about a local stabbing. He read the numerous articles which reported on the death of Cheryl Moss. Harling was living with his parents and 16-year-old sister. They had been away on holiday when Cheryl was killed. Describing how Cheryl Moss was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, Brian Altman QC told the jury she turned out to be the tragic, unfortunate person who the defendant came across that day. The prosecutor recounted the circumstances of the attack. He stated Harling struck so quickly and suddenly that he completely overwhelmed Cheryl Moss. She had no time to flee and was unable to defend herself, the prosecutor said. She had no time to even scream for help. Harling fled as quickly as he arrived. Brian Altman QC regarded the murder as being fueled by the fantasy world Harling lived in. Specifying what he thought were the killer's desires, the prosecutor said, 
He seemed to want infamy. He wanted media attention, where he would be portrayed as the victim. Cheryl Moss had been stabbed or slashed a total of 72 times all over her body. Six of the stab wounds were made with such force they penetrated her skull. When these details were recounted, several onlookers left the public gallery, too upset to hear the rest of the evidence. Members of the court were told that Harling set out to murder someone, which he executed in a, quote, chillingly calculated way. While it was submitted by the defence that Harling was not responsible for his actions, Brian Altman QC told the jury to disregard this argument and find the defendant guilty of murder. It was not disputed that Harling had Asperger's, but this did not make him more likely to commit a murder. A forensic connection between Cheryl Moss and Stuart Harling was made when Harling's DNA was detected on Cheryl's belongings. Brian Altman QC told the court Harling had purchased the hunting knife used in the killing on eBay, along with clothing, trainers, gloves and a long dark witch's wig. The auction was labelled a killer's kit by the prosecutor. The transaction to purchase the knife occurred at the end of summer 2005, ten months before Cheryl Moss was murdered. Harling had made a list of what he needed to commit the crime, one item which was not found in the sports bag but was on his list, was a condom. Brian Altman QC did not believe that Harling was subject to an abnormality of mind at the time of the killing. He was a cold-blooded killer who acted out his fantasy. Four months after his arrest, Stuart Harling was being held on remand at HMP Belmarsh. Harling was seen tearing strips from his bedsheet. He fashioned what appeared to be a homemade noose. The alarm was raised and Harling was placed on suicide watch. A guard, Christopher Potter, was on duty to monitor the prisoner. One evening, a television was playing in the background and Harling watched an episode of CSI Crime Scene Investigation before he tried to get some sleep. He remained restless, and this is when he started chatting to the prison guard. The pair at first made small talk. Then Christopher Potter had a feeling that Harling wanted to talk about what had happened. He asked the prisoner why he killed someone. The prison guard gave a police statement about the conversation, which was read to the court. Describing what he discovered, Christopher Potter said, On the day he murdered her, he was just bored. He could not rule out doing it again. Arling told the prison guard that he got bored very easily.
Stuart Harling testified in his own defence. His demeanour was far from the young man screaming and shouting obscenities in the courtroom at the start of the trial. This time the defendant was under the watchful eyes of six large guards of the court. Harling spoke about his life and admitted that before his incarceration, he would spend his time playing violent video games and browsing the internet. He confessed that he did watch a large amount of pornography and visited websites which pictured torture. A favourite website of his was psychopath.com. Around two months before the killing, Harling's obsession with serial killers began to intensify. He read about the crimes perpetrated by American serial killers Richard Ramirez and Jeffrey Dahmer, along with Colin Island, an Englishman who admitted to killing five men during spring 1993. Island taunted Scotland Yard and told them he wanted to be a serial killer. Harling, a junior black belt in kickboxing, said that when he was younger he wanted to carry out a school shooting, but he was unable to get hold of any firearms. As some form of revenge on the school bullies that taunted him, he considered the Columbine High School shooting as the type of attack he wanted to carry out. Eight years earlier, two students, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold from Colorado, shot dead 12 students and a teacher, along with injuring dozens more before taking their own lives. Stuart Harling detailed what his counsel had briefly touched on. How he wanted to steal a car to aid in his plot to overthrow an African government. The vehicle was to be loaded with weapons which could be driven overseas, where he would command an army. To carry out the plot, Harling chose to stalk the grounds of St George's Hospital dressed in a wig and carrying a weapon that resembled a, quote, Crocodile Dundee-style knife. According to the defendant, the attack was completely random. He had never met Cheryl Moss before. He watched as she was having a cigarette and talking on her mobile phone. He waited until she finished before he ran towards her. It was clear that Harling wanted to strike terror into the victim as he confessed to the court that he held the knife in such a way that the glare of the sun would reflect off the metal. He said, She noticed me, and she said, Oh no. I was still running. I started stabbing her in the back. Cheryl Moss could barely utter another word. In a calm voice, the defendant said, I remember stabbing her in the back while she was on the floor there. It was like seeing a film. Harling spoke without emotion, as he stated that the killing did not mean anything. His defence counsel, Michael Walkind QC, told jurors how his client was not walking evil. His mind has gone wrong. 
He is a sick man, the barrister said. Walkind reminded the court of Harling's Asperger's diagnosis and how he was confident his client had a schizoid personality disorder. Under cross-examination, Brian Altman QC suggested that Harling's actions were due to the fact he had a fascination with killing someone. She just happened to cross your path that day. You derive some sadistic pleasure from it, the prosecutor said. Harling was indifferent, telling the court, I went out that day with the knife and other stuff because I was bored. I remember stabbing her in the back. I only stopped because my wig fell off. I was kind of surprised when I heard she was dead. It doesn't really bother me. I'd do it again. Stuart Harling could not tell the court why he decided to attack Cheryl. It kind of ruined my day, he said. At this point, members of Cheryl's family were seen exiting the court for a second time. Harling only admitted that he wanted to steal a car. He could not provide an answer as to how this escalated to taking someone's life. When asked directly why he did it, Harling replied, I don't know. It was weird. Although they were one person down by the end of the trial, 11 members of the jury spent almost six hours deliberating the case. Stuart Harling did not refute the fact that armed with a knife, he stabbed or slashed Cheryl Moss 72 times. It was up to the jury to decide whether or not Harling was suffering from a mental abnormality which diminished his responsibility when he carried out the killing. When jurors reached a verdict, Harling refused to return to the court. Instead, chose to remain in his cell. One juror felt that Harling's mental state did affect his actions, and he was not guilty of murder. The ten remaining jurors did not. Stuart Harling was found guilty by a majority verdict. After Stuart Harling was convicted, members of the inquiry team were interviewed. They were certain that had Harling not been apprehended, he would have gone on to kill again. This was something he admitted. Officers felt that all the signs pointed to a serial killer in the making. representative of mental health charity Zyto Trust spoke about the case with a correspondent from the BBC. 
Michael Howlett, the co-founder of the charity who campaigned heavily to reform mental health policy, discussed the problems that would come with Harling's incarceration. He said, The authorities are going to have to deal with him carefully and appropriately. If he just goes to prison, then he could be out in ten years, and where he could actually get substantially worse. If there's any issue with him, then they need to work out what it is. He does seem highly disturbed. The question is why, and since when? The case raised questions around culpability and highlighted the difficulty in how a jury could identify someone with a genuine mental health issue and someone who was only using the defence to get a lesser sentence. Zyto Trust co-founder Michael Howlett would later suggest that the way murder and manslaughter charges are utilised during a prosecution was not fit for purpose and should be changed. In an interview six months after Stuart Harling's conviction, Howlett again spoke with the BBC and proposed that a jury should only decide on whether a defendant had committed homicide. Then, based on expert evidence, the judge would determine how the person convicted should be punished and rehabilitated. Other experts in the field of mental health agreed that there were instances where the defence of diminished responsibility had been abused. But for the most part, the criminal justice system operated as it should. Chief Executive of the mental health charity SANE acknowledged the upset that the victims' families felt, though she also believed it was important to recognise mental health issues. Marjorie Wallace remarked, The law should be able to demonstrate compassion towards those who commit crimes, however terrible, when the balance of their mind was disturbed. Peter Moss, Cheryl's widower, spoke of the bittersweet satisfaction that the person responsible for his wife's death was brought to justice. However, he felt more needed to be done to protect those people employed in social care. We are glad that this evil person was caught quickly, so that no one else had to lose their life as this was very likely, he said. This case raises many questions concerning knife crime, internet use and also staff security at work which on a personal note we still feel is not being taken seriously by the NHS and primary care trusts. Peter described that all he wanted was to raise a family and grow old with the woman he loved. Cheryl never asked for anything, he said. All she ever did was care for other people. I was so proud to be her husband. And I always will be. My life will be empty without her. Peter Moss felt that his wife's passing was something that the family would never recover from. Cheryl's relatives believed that as Harling had ended a life, he should remain in prison indefinitely and never be released. Cheryl's husband said, Until this deterrent is used, it is unlikely that violent crime and murder will subside. 
Stuart Harling had committed murder, he would be facing an automatic life sentence. Cheryl Moss's death was described as a waste of a wonderful life. In a victim personal statement read aloud to the court, her husband described how Cheryl meant everything to him. Cheryl had everything I was looking for, he wrote. I knew I had found the person to spend the rest of my life with. I feel empty. All I have now are memories. Michael Wolkind QC recognised that his client had shown no remorse throughout the trial. The barrister expressed his sympathy. Much like when the verdict was read aloud, Stuart Harling was not in the dock. He refused to leave his cell. Common Sergeant of London Judge Brian Barker told the court that Harling had made it known that he would become violent if he was made to stand before the court to receive his sentence. Despite his absence, the judge spoke to Harling directly as though he were in the courtroom. Judge Brian Barker said, The evil is that when you put your research into practice, Cheryl Moss had the misfortune to stumble across your path. Your destructive and deadly actions appear to have meant little to you. What you gained and what you seem to have sought is infamy. This was a terrible and wicked attack. It robbed the community of a vibrant and contributing member with so much of her life in front of her. Stuart Harling was sentenced to a minimum of 20 years in prison. So where are we now? Two weeks after Stuart Harling was sentenced, his mother Lorraine gave an interview to a reporter for the News of the World. She recounted how, along with Harling's father, they purchased their son a PlayStation games console shortly before he became a teenager. Lorraine claimed that she did not realise that the computer game she bought Harling came with an age warning. Lorraine was of the belief that most parents were unaware of the content of the games their children played. One such game that Harling played was called Manhunt. In the UK, it carried an 18 certificate. Players command a character who is a patient that has escaped from a mental health facility and is forced to commit brutal acts of violence. To complete each mission, players need to sneak up on the opposition and execute their targets with a variety of weapons such as plastic bags knives and chainsaws. Points are awarded depending on the brutality of the kill. Lorraine Harling said, I know these games are played by kids across the world, but some are truly horrific. And if they can cause a trigger to be pulled in someone's head, they should be banned. She felt that her son's violent actions on that day in April 2006 
were inspired in part by the video games he played on his PlayStation. By now, factoring in time on remand, Stuart Harling would be 15 years into his sentence. Public record does not indicate whether or not he has been released early on licence. This information would not be issued by the National Probation Service. During the trial, forensic psychiatrist Dr Philip Joseph was asked if Harling should ever be released. He said... Harling comes across as a well-balanced, polite individual, which may mean he will be eligible for parole early. On the face of it, there is nothing about him that would alert you to how dangerous he is. The doctor concluded, Extreme caution must be used if there comes a time when he is eligible for release. It will be almost impossible to know when it will be safe to let him out. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Beth Elliott, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.